Biblical historical literature records unique events that aren't intended to be repeated. And in fact, one of the main reasons you record the unique events is because nobody's going to see that specific kind of thing again. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. Passover. The actual Passover event happened once. As you probably know, the actual Passover event took place the night before the Jewish people left Egypt, left Egyptian bondage of about 400 years. And they were told, sacrifice a lamb without blemish, put the blood on the doorpost and across the top, get in the house. That night when the death angel comes and takes the firstborn of every household in Egypt. If you're in a house that's protected by the blood of the lamb, the death angel will what? Pass over. And your firstborn will be spared. Now, for 3,500 years, for thousands of years since that event, Daryl, the Jewish people have celebrated Passover, but they don't put blood on the doorpost, and they're not expecting millions of firstborns in non-kosher households to die. The celebration of Passover remembers a one-time unique event not designed to be repeated nor recorded in Exodus because it's it's going to be repeated. It's recorded because it's unique. It happened once. It's not going to happen again. Same kind of thing happened in the events we looked at last week. We'll read over them briefly in a minute to refresh your memory. When we talk about the uh, events of Pentecost in Jerusalem about 10 days after the ascension of Christ, we saw this amazing miracle where the Pentecost holiday had attracted Jews from all over the Mediterranean basin whose first language wasn't Hebrew, Aramaic, or, or Greek. They needed some help to understand the preaching of the gospel. And guess what, Daryl? The 120 believers had been praying for 10 days, waiting for what Jesus had said would happen. The Holy Spirit will baptize you. Don't leave town. Everybody in the crowd there celebrating the Feast of Pentecost heard the 120 speaking in their own language. So people that spoke uh, Latin were hearing these Galileans speak Latin as they preached Jesus. And people who spoke Proto-Aramaic We're listening to that, or Proto-Arabic, or whatever other languages there were there, and there were many. Uh, But here's the thing. There's a a, a pretty large subset of Christianity today, and has been for about 100 years, that insists, Connie, that basically the events of Acts 2 should be reproduced in every generation and really in every Christian. And I'm convinced, respectfully, that's not the reason we have Acts 2 recorded for us, it's recorded kind of like the Passover event. It's unique. It happened once. It has implications that go on. It teaches us about the character of God, and it tells us very distinctively that the New Testament church had a supernatural birth, because that's what those manifestation of languages were designed to mark and to validate. So we're going to see that kind of thing today and talk about God's purpose for signs and wonders. I'm a non-charismatic who believes in miracles, but signs and wonders, a specific type of especially spectacular miracles, only happen very rarely when God's making unique pivot points in his plan. God always, watch this, this is great. God's grace always precedes God's judgment, 
And anytime we get a major paradigm shift, he always marks it very distinctly and clearly with unique type of miracles, not miracles that happen all the time, every day. So today we're going to see Peter preaching in the aftermath of an attempt to explain away the miracle. Some cynics said those people are just drunk. And Peter's going to say this isn't a natural thing. It's certainly not drunkenness. It's something else that marks a whole new beginning in God's plan. We'll talk about the way God uses miracles then and now. But I think my bottom line is God's purpose for signs and wonders miracles is to validate and to mark the beginning of new phases in its plan. And we're blessed to be 2,000 years into the church age. Church age started a long time ago. Um, let's pray for uh, teachability to God's word. Uh, let's pray the teacher will have a pure heart and a clear head and a concise content. 45 minutes or less. Um, and uh, let's also pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, and our... Um, our active military, okay? And uh, Danny Pollock, lead us in prayer in that direction, would you? Thank you. You know, Acts 2 describes a, a really unique beginning, the beginning of the church age. And anytime God starts something new, it's, it's great. But when men or women try to create something new, quite often it bombs. I'm so old, I remember when the, one of the biggest corporations in the world, the Coca-Cola Company, decided their major beverage, which was the most popular soft drink in the world, wasn't good enough. Do you remember this, some of you older people? They invented new Coke, and they took the real stuff off the shelves, and it bombed. It was a disaster. Nobody liked the new Coke. Nobody wanted to drink the new Coke. Uh, for about two weeks, like any good bureaucracy, they dug their heels in, and said, we're smarter than all the billions of consumers that drink this stuff. We're going to cram it down your throats. And uh, then about a month later, they came out with, well, we're going to keep pushing the new Coke, but we're going to come back with Coke Classic. <laughs> and then about a year ago, the new Coke went away. Well, you know, a lot of us really enjoyed uh, The Sound of Music, which was presented recently by the Duncan Little Theater, especially Sonia Skinner's uh, integral part in that. Uh, but just to illustrate, as we're looking at Acts, about new beginnings, new church age that we're benefited uh, and enjoy living in that same era right now. But just to show you how newer is not necessarily better, here are three plays, major plays, Broadway plays, that tried to one-up classic plays. Newer is not necessarily better. You've heard of The Sound of Music? That led to a play back in 1972, The Sound of Muzak. <laughs> Not necessarily laugh out loud funny, but just thought-provoking. You heard of Romeo and Juliet? Some guy, Billy Shakespeare wrote that. That led to Mr. and Mrs. Montague meet with Dr. Phil. <laughs> you know, Capulets and Montague. And, you know, at yeah. you know, seminary they said, if you have to explain your jokes, don't tell them. Finally, Oklahoma, have you heard of that one? Led to Oprah-homa. My point is, newer is not necessarily better, but we are looking at the fresh, new beginning going from the Old Testament paradigm to the New Testament paradigm in God's program in the book of Acts here, chapter 2. And speaking of miracles, and we're going to talk about the manifestation of languages again that we saw last week that was such a striking miracle. But sometimes 
the, the fact that Peter's going to stand up here now in verse 14 and defend what's happening and preach Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem, Ken, where just a few months before they had brutally beaten and then crucified Jesus is a big miracle. I mean, how did Peter react the night of the arrest? Did he get up and preach Jesus to everybody? He denied Jesus and, and cusses about it. And, and now this guy stands up and he says, you know, I can't do anything but tell you what the truth is. So don't miss that. We're moving from profanity in Peter to proclamation in his Pentecostal preaching. And I like all those Ps. Now this passage uh, that we're going to look at today is verses 14 through 36. You notice in the blue at the bottom of that graphic, we've got uh, some verses outside of that. Next week, we're going to celebrate Easter. This is Palm Sunday. But I was t- telling Scott, uh, I mentioned one of my mentors, kind of. Uh, we weren't that close, but I've always admired him. was Dr. Harold Honer at Dallas Seminary. And his Ph.D. dissertation at Cambridge University was called Dating the New Testament. And he got all the biblical data and all the historical data and all the scientific stars data, and he tried to put dates on all the significant events and make sure it was, it was all uh, legit. And uh, I remember one time uh, he told us in class, uh, he said, uh, we were talking about the life of Christ, and he said, guys, I hate to, hate to hurt your feelings here, but I've done all the work, I've added up all the numbers, and Palm Sunday was actually Palm Monday. <laughs> but uh, I remember, I was telling Scott, you know, I grew up in Miami, Florida, elementary school years, and I can remember, like in first, second grade, third grade, when we would approach Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, we would go outside in the back of the church and cut down palm fronds, because they have palm trees in Florida, gay, and we would actually do the Palm Sunday kind of thing, similar to what would have happened as Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll celebrate uh, Easter with a special message on the resurrection. Surprise topic, you know, for the resurrection uh, for Easter. Uh, but Lord willing, we'll come back next the week after that, two weeks, and we'll look at the conclusion and the invitation in this uh, message. And I know that uh, Stan's interested in that because Acts two thirty eight is used a lot, and I, I think incorrectly. But today we're going to look at the introduction and the body of Peter's proclamation, kind of an explanation for what's happening here, and then an exposition of Scripture. And just for some context, and by the way, important to remember our setting and time, of course. Uh, We're talking about events that took place right there. Uh, Our Lord Jesus dies, according to Dr. Honer, on April 3, 33 A.D. This year, this Friday, Tom, is going to be Good Friday. What's the date? April 3. So that's pretty cool. And the date's not critically important, but I'm convinced it's the right date. But listen, Jesus didn't just die as a virtuous martyr. The Romans killed hundreds of thousands of people in the first century by crucifixion that they considered dangerous. But only one was resurrected from the dead. And Jesus' death wasn't just him getting in the way of the Roman or the Jewish leaders' power plans. It was a voluntary sacrifice. The Bible says he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He, Jesus Glenda, who knew no sin, was made to be a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. However, a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected Savior is the only one who can, and he saves all who believe. 
No one's so bad they can't have salvation. No one's so good they don't need it. So we have the substitutionary atoning sacrificial death of Christ for the sins of the world on Good Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. That next Sunday, we have the resurrection. For 40 days, Jesus appears to multiple people, multiple places, proves, validates the resurrection. And then what happens 40 days after the resurrection? Acts chapter 1, the ascension, right? The literal bodily ascension. Now, Jesus could have just snapped his fingers and been in heaven, but he wanted his guys to see with their eyeballs what happened. And then two angels, as Jesus ascends and disappears into the clouds, two angels say something to the apostles who's like that, you know, whose jaws have dropped. Said, this same Jesus who left that way will someday come back the same way. And Zechariah 12, Joe tells us, he'll not only come back the same way, visibly, literally, undeniably, supernaturally, he's going to come back to the exact same place. Because Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, says the Messiah will come in his glorious appearing to the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus ascended from. Now, we're talking about events that took place 10 days after that, on the day of Pentecost, 33 AD. And let's read this passage just to remember what we saw last week. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension that they'd all seen, had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise that sounded like a violent rushing wind. There wasn't a wind. It was just a noise, like a freight train, like a tornado. And you know, we, we read this uh, last Sunday and then last Wednesday. It looked like we might be hearing one in real time. It didn't miss us this time. And this noise filled the whole house where they, the 120, the, uh, the 12 plus the other believers are waiting for the promised baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised back in chapter 1, verse 5. And in addition to the sound, there was this sight, these ovoids of light, glossa, means a tongue like the one in your mouth or anything that looks like a tongue like in your shoe when you lace it up the laces go on top of your shoe tongue and these look like tongues they're ovals of light probably Shekinah glory manifestation of the Holy Spirit that came upon each one of them so we've got a sound a sight and now we got the sign verse 4 and they were all filled controlled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages your translation may say tongues, but glossa means the physical tongue, things that look like tongues, or languages. And here we're talking about languages, as the context makes clear. So I'm going to render it that way. They all began to speak these relatively uneducated Galileans who spoke Aramaic well, a little Greek, and nothing much else, are speaking all kinds of different languages because the Spirit was allowing them to. This wasn't something they'd naturally learned. They had not done Rosetta Stone for uh, Latin. They just suddenly speak Latin. That's a miracle. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem temporarily and some permanently, but come from the uh, reaches of the Mediterranean basin for the holiday of Pentecost, devout men from every nation under heaven. So he had a lot of uh, visitors, pilgrims, as it were, in Jerusalem that day, whose first language wasn't Aramaic or Greek. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them in the crowd, the folks who had been pilgrims to Jerusalem, was hearing them, 
the believers, the 120 who had been allowed by the Spirit to speak all these different languages, because each one of them, the pilgrims, was hearing the believers speak in their own language, in their first language. And they were amazed and astounded. and said, these people are Galileans, and they're not well known for being tri-quad quintuple lingual, you know? How is it that each one of us hears them in our language to which we were born, our native first language? And he lists some of the different regions, drop down to verse 12. And they were all continued, and, and they all continued in amazement as they were perceiving the crowd, this miracle. They're all hearing each one speaking in their own language. It's kind of a miracle of hearing as well as speaking. Uh, with great perplexity, saying, what does this mean? What it means is God shifting gears, Emma. We're going from Old Testament to New Testament. We're going from spirituality on training wheels to taking the training wheels off, from faith in a promised Savior to faith in a provided Savior. That's what it means. And then verse 13, but you always have some cynics in every crowd, right? But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. Now, in response to that, and I, you know, at one level, I don't think they're seriously thinking that uh, maybe some of them thought they were drunk. But Peter is saying, don't try to explain this way naturally. This is a supernatural calling card saying God is radically changing paradigms and you need to get with the program. Fish or cut bait kind of thing. Look at verses 14 through 21. But Peter, responding to that last charge, we can explain this way naturally, maybe even they're drunk, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Jerusalem and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and take heed to my words. Listen up. For these men, and that's generic, people, men, Scott as much as Nancy, are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. First hour of the day, 6 a.m. to 7. Second hour of the day, 7 to 8. Third hour, 8 a.m. to 9. So, Dale, there's some time between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. And he's saying it's too early for us all to be drunk. Anyway, for these men aren't drunk, but it's too early for that. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Very familiar passage to these people, often preached in that day. We call it Joel 20. 228 through 32 today, and he's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. And it shall be in the last days, God says, he's quoting Joel 2, that I will pour forth my spirit on all kinds of different people all over the world, not just Jews, different nations, different languages. And your sons and daughters, not just male but female, will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Because old men are tired, so, you know. Visions are when you receive divine revelation when you're awake. Dreams when you receive divine revelation when you're asleep. Not every one of your dreams is divine revelation, but if you get a, a revelatory dream, you'll be asleep. Uh, even on my bond slaves, doesn't matter about your social economic status, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall speak God's word. They'll prophesy God's word. And I'll grant wonders, signs and wonders. Now, by the way, let me give my hand away. The Joel passage is talking about the events just before the second advent of Christ, okay? I'll show you how that works in a minute. But none of this stuff in verse 9 happens on the day of Pentecost. 19, none of this stuff in verse 19 happens on the day of Pentecost. But he's trying to get to that last statement in that longer passage about calling on the name of the Lord. I will grant wonders in the sky above. Signs on the earth below, signs and wonders are special, spectacular miracles as a calling card and validation that we're doing a new paradigm. We're moving into a new phase of God's program. 
And also signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon and the blood. is exactly what Jesus said it would look like when he comes back in Matthew 24, exactly what much of Revelation 6 through 18 talks about. Talking about the second advent, end times future prophecy, not Acts 2, but he's using it in a particular way. We'll show you. Before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And, and here's his bottom line, here's kind of the invitation beginning as it were, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Looking at these verses, verses 14 through 21, and we're seeing that the manifestation of languages that we read about back in verse 4, each began speaking in other languages as the Spirit allowed them to. Verse 8, the crowd says, how is it that we each hear them in our own language? That manifestation... Kylene, that supernatural manifestation of languages in Acts 2 was not due to drunkenness, was not something you can explain away naturally, but was the result of the descent of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the church age as a sign to validate we're beginning a whole new paradigm. Uh, And it's happening in a way consistent with the way God's going to work in the end times. And so he cites this end time prophecy of Joel. Now, Look at verse 14 again. Peter takes his stand. He's just the natural leader. I don't think he's forcing this, but he's got the bombastic personality. And he's not scared spitless about speaking in front of groups of people. Um, One of the, as they poll Americans, not all cultures are like this, but Americans don't like to speak in front of groups of people. And uh, I'll give you my testimony some other time. But I was exactly like that in dental school. I think I've told Michael in brief, you know, that as a little kid, nine years old, uh, walked the aisle of Southern Baptist Revival, trusted Christ as my Savior, kind of sensed a leading toward ministry, but I was scared spitless to speak in front of groups of people giving book reports at school. Couldn't sleep for a couple of nights before, just scared spitless. And I was very smart at the time, but I figured I must be misinterpreting what God wants to do in my life, gay. I can't be a preacher if I'm afraid to speak to groups of people. So God worked out in my life uh, in supernatural ways, and now I actually teach public speaking at the university level, so figure that out. But I break a lot of the rules up here, but just so you'll know. But, uh, but I can give a really good five-minute speech, which is all we're teaching them how to do. But Peter just is the obvious by, kind of like, in a way, Dale and Homer to me, I'm all the equal, elders are equal, but to me, Homer and Dale, based on their investment in the church, their, I'm going to use a bad word, longevity, I mean, it's old age. Uh, just they've been here. They get it. They love it. They love the Lord, love the word, love the church. And I see them as leaders among equals. That's just, that's just me. And Peter's kind of like that. But he didn't demand that. He's certainly not the first pope. But Peter taking a stand with the other 11, including Matthias, remember, chapter 1, raised his voice. And he's going to use this question or this ridiculous explanation. They're just junk as the basis for a defense and a presentation of who Jesus is to the crowd. So it says, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, that's to be known to you. Give heed to my words for these people, 120 men and women are not drunk. You suppose it's too early for us to be drunk. We haven't drank any wine today, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Then he cites an end times prophecy, not an Acts 2 prophecy. So what's going on here? Um, forgot to do that, but you know, if you do that at Cameron, I take three points off your speech. So that's, uh, I'm down to like, what, 83 now? Uh, there's actually three options that Christians uh, 
take us. They try to figure out how is Peter using and appealing to this Old Testament prophecy in Joel. And again, this was a, a statement that would have been very familiar to the listeners. That was a popular book and it was a popular passage. We know that from all the citations in the, in the extra-biblical context and literature. So why is he talking about the second coming of Christ as an explanation for Acts 2? Well, there's three options. One option is uh, the events of Acts 2, 1 through 4 is where the manifestation of tongues is specifically talked about and then everything else is reaction to it is in fact not what I'm saying, but is the fulfillment, the intended fulfillment for Joel 2, 28 through 32. Some people believe that and sincerely, and they would just say that, you know, there's just a lot, a lot of hyperbole in, in biblical prophecy, and you don't take it very literally, and it's just kind of generic. Uh, and they're saying when Joel wrote this prophecy, he was talking about the beginning of the New Testament church. But when you look at the book of Joel, I mean, chapter 1 talks about a historical locust plague that ruined the nation and how the nation repented and God let them uh, respond to that. And then Joel says, you know, in the end times, it's going to be even worse. But God, during the tribulation leading up to the second advent, is going to soften the hearts of the Jewish nation so that those who are alive just before the second coming, they all trust in Yeshua as Hamashiach, as the Messiah. Uh, but it takes some tremendous uh, signs and wonders involving the moon, the sun, everything. But some people say, well, no, uh, when he says this is that, that means this is an exact fulfillment, exact equivalence, and that's what it is. Uh, for me, I can't go there because that has an Old Testament prophet in detail talking about a New Testament event. And when you look at Old Testament prophecy everywhere else, it looks like the Old Testament prophets talk about the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ like they're on two mountaintops and there's a valley between New Testament church. They don't talk about the New Testament church and Paul makes it a big deal in the passage at the end of Romans that Ron read for the uh, call to worship specifically says the New Testament church is a mystery. And a mystery is not something mysterious and spooky but something unrevealed in the Old Testament uh, that's new. Uh, this is one reason, Donna, that he had to have signs and wonders in Acts 2 to get everybody's attention. And as Scott and I were talking about yesterday, uh, Peter had a hard time connecting the dots. He's still trying to talk God into eating kosher in Acts 10. You know, Peter has this vision. He's awake, this blanket, this uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, tablecloth appears, and it comes down. It's full of all kinds of non-kosher food like pigs. And the command to Peter is, kill and eat. And he says, I can't do that. I'm a good Jewish boy. I'm kosher. Comes down two times, comes down three times. Says, I can't do that. I'm kosher. And God says, what I've cleansed, no longer call unclean. If you want to eat kosher, that's fine, but you're not required to. We're in a whole new deal. Aren't you there at Acts 2, Peter? Don't you realize we shifted gears? We took off the training wheels kind of thing? So uh, for me, I just uh, can't imagine a prophet being this specific about a New Testament event like that. Plus, I'm just not prepared to allegorize all this stuff about the sun, moon, and, and so on, especially when Jesus uses that exact same terminology in Matthew 24, and the book of Revelation is full of it. Uh, I, I just can't go there, but some people do, and, and uh, that's their honest opinion, and that's okay. But in fact, when you look at Joel 2 again, this is our kind of timeline based on Revelation. We're in the church age here, but Joel 2 is talking about events right here at the end of the trib, just before the second advent, and really accompanying the second advent, and uh, 
Don't think that's what he's talking about. But that's one option. Maybe that's your opinion. You're, you're entitled to that. But I'm going somewhere else. Um, rather than going for option three, which is what everybody should go for, however, we've got some Dallas Seminary guys that want to say there's a second option. And no, Peter's not saying that Joel is exactly uh, predicting what they just had seen in Jerusalem. But part of Joel, a little bit of this eschatological end times prophecy of Joel, just a little bit of it, about maybe a third of it is fulfilled uh, and, and was intended to be fulfilled in Joel's mind and the Spirit's mind when Joel wrote the book in this New Testament event. And uh, again, that just obliterates the whole mystery concept uh, of the New Testament church, seems to me. You're not going to find specific Old Testament prophets talking about specific uh, church age events. It just doesn't happen anywhere else. Uh, option three, the events of Acts 2, the manifestation of tongues that are being explained away as drunkenness or trying to uh, be explained away naturally, are analogous, are the same kind of thing as the end times events described in Joel 2, 28 through 32. Uh, the similarity of these signs and wonders is what's being emphasized here. Now, when you look at Old Testament prophecy, okay, uh, I'm just going to tell you, Jared, the Old Testament prophets don't predict the church, otherwise it wouldn't be a mystery and Paul would be all washed up all over his letters. So you can't do that. But quite often they are literal. Uh, we can know a lot from literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophets when it comes to who Jesus would be, where he'd be born, what he would do. Who was Jesus going to be? Was he going to be a Jew? Yeah. What tribe was he going to be a member of? Judah. What family was he going to be a member of? David, Solomon. How do we know that? Because of specific Old Testament prophecies that were specifically fulfilled in his pedigree, which is why the most Jewish, the most Old Testament-rooted gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew starts with a genealogy to show you Jesus qualifies because he is a Jew, he is a member of the tribe of Judah, he is a member of the family of David, and more than that, he's born of a virgin. That really narrows it down, right? So that would be an example of literal uh, prophecy, literal fulfillment. Uh, Micah 5 says the Messiah will be born in a particular city. Bethlehem, house of bread. So when the Magi come, they don't have... They don't know the Old Testament that well. They say, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? Herod doesn't know either. He probably should know his Bible well enough, but he calls his religious wise guys, and they say, hey, we know that. Micah 5, too. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, literal. And that's where he was, right? When it comes to the substitutionary atoning power of the death of the Messiah, Michelle, we've got a lot of passages on that, but the main one is Isaiah 53, which goes into great detail. That's fulfilled literally. However, not all Old Testament prophecy, when cited in the New Testament, is designed to be taken as an exact fulfillment. Quite often you've got not exact equivalence, but significant overlap. Okay? And this is what you've got, I think, in the way Peter intentionally cites this passage, consistent with what Joel meant about the end times. They're both talking about his, uh, Holy Spirit produce signs and wonders validating new beginnings. Uh, let me start uh, here. Um, Jesus says at the Last Supper, this is my body. This is my body. Is that matzah, his body? No. 
What he means by that is this is an outstanding representation, visual aid of my body. In what way? How could holding up a slice of Wonder Bread possibly... He's not holding up Wonder Bread. What's he holding up? He's holding up a Jewish matzah from the Passover uh, feast. It would have lines from the baking in it. It would have holes to vent the heat. He's holding up something with lines on it and holes in it. He says, this is my body. He's not saying that's his body. He's, Here's his body. Here's the matzah. It's two different things. This is my body in the sense it represents it. In what ways would stripes and holes represent the body of Jesus? What do they do after the end of the Last Supper? You've got a Mount of Olives, prays, gets arrested, gets beaten up, stripes. Those are the lines. Next day, punctured ones. Okay? This is my body. There's a large group based out of Rome that says when you take the Mass, that bread turns into the body of Jesus. That's not what he meant. He's just using a visual aid. This is that kind of thing. Substantial overlap, not exact equivalence. What's this overlap between the matzah and the body of Christ? Stripes and puncture wounds, right? How about this one? Behold, the Lamb of God. If you had no context and somebody said, there's a lamb, what would you expect to see? Barnyard animal, right? What was he talking about? Was he, was John the Baptist is speaking there. Was he talking about, isn't that a cute little lamb? Yeah. Um, but that's not what he's talking about, was it? I like that graphic I found on the internet. You've got the Passover sacrificial lamb, the blood on the doorpost, because Jesus is the door, I am the door to God. That represents that. But Jesus isn't that, is he? He's not a barnyard animal, right? What's the significant overlap? They're both objects of sacrifice. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Um, So personally, I think I would translate this something like that. Um, When you see in verse 16, this is what was spoken, and people read it and expect the exact correspondence with the end-time prophecy in Acts 2. It's not the same thing. This is the same kind of thing which was spoken of to the prophet of Joel. When we have major new beginnings in God's program, he validates it with amazing signs and wonders. And let me list a passage you know about. Right before the Messiah comes in glory to set up the new age, we're going to have all these Holy Spirit wonders, just a plethora, male, female, rich, poor, all kinds of stuff, most of which didn't happen in Acts 2. He knows that, they know that. But he's just saying the Holy Spirit is going to do that then. The Holy Spirit did that now because we've got a new beginning. We're not in the end times, but we're in a new phase of the program. Joel 2, signs and wonders, Holy Spirit mark the end of the age, beginning of the Messianic age of what we would call the second advent, what they would call the glorious appearing of the Messiah. And he's saying the same kind of thing as what you're just seeing here. This isn't something you can explain away naturally it's not a natural thing it's a supernatural thing in other words the supernatural manifestation of languages we just read about in acts 2 which the city of jerusalem had just seen and heard was being used by god to mark the end of the old testament era the beginning of the new testament era the birth of the new testament church that's what's happening there that's what he means by that okay now 
Let's look at uh, verses 22 through 36, which basically says, Jesus of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of all who believe in him. And God the Father validated his ministry with signs and wonders, uh, leading to his substitutionary atoning sacrificial death slash literal bodily supernatural resurrection, ascension, and we're anticipating his future return on God's timeline. Look at verse 22. First, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is being highlighted by Peter. This takes a lot of guts for a guy who uh, failed under fire two months ago and now is standing hundreds of yards away from where the scene of the events were and is preaching Jesus like this, and it's all about Jesus for Peter. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested. Just like he's attesting we're starting a new thing here. New Testament church has just been birthed. A man attested to you by God the Father with miracles and signs and wonders, which God uniquely performed through him. Walking on water, anybody else do that? Well, Peter did it temporarily, right? Uh, just as you yourself know, you, you know the reports. You're living in, the, in this generation. Everybody's heard about it. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, is God sovereign? Yeah. You nailed to a cross. Are people responsible? Yeah. So which do you believe? Do you believe in God's sovereignty or human responsibility? You believe in both because the Bible affirms both side by side. Makes no attempt to explain it because, Nate, as you practice optometry, you'll have little kids. I was just a little kid when I got my first set of glasses, and the doctor didn't try to sit me down and explain optics to me. He just said, put these on, kid. So you have to quit bumping into the furniture. He, he didn't say that, but... You don't try to explain complicated things to two-year-olds, and if you do, you use simplified uh, language. Uh, I heard a preacher say one time, somebody came in, a mom came in for counseling and said, uh, I got a problem. And he said, what is it? Well, my four-year-old, and she was pregnant, my four-year-old wants uh, to know where babies come from. And my husband and I don't know what to say because we don't want to go into all the gynecological functions. And he said, just tell them they come from mommy's tummies. That's all they need to know, right? You don't tell them everything. So uh, the Bible never tries to explain how God can be absolutely sovereign and we're making real choices. It just affirms them both and never explains them. That's one question you can ask him in heaven because you probably have the capacity to understand it then. But he says, according to God's plan, but you guys did it and you're culpable for the sin of it and the rejection that you showed, you all y'all nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, these Romans we all despise because they're uh, very painfully subjugating us under their boot. And you put him to death, but God raised him up again, literal bodily resurrection, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him, Jesus the Messiah, to be held in his power. And we know that because of Old Testament prophecy, and here's one that is fulfilled. Literally, the overlap is right on top of it. For David in Psalm 16 says of him, the Messiah, Messiah speaking, being quoted here, I saw the Lord, I saw God always in my presence and in my ministry. He's at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue exalted, moreover, my flesh will also live in hope because you, God the Father, will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One, me, the Messiah, to undergo decay. How long was Jesus' body in the tomb? Friday to Sunday. It just began to decay a little. It didn't decay into just 
nothingness. It was resurrected. So he's saying, hey, based on that statement about the Messiah, we knew he was going to be resurrected. Uh, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness, of the gladness of your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you, now David wrote the psalm, right? Verse 25, David says of him in Psalm 16 of the Messiah. But look what, David, look what Peter does here. After citing that passage, he says, hey, brethren, watch this. I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is just across the Kidron Valley. His body is still down there. Now, as Ron will tell you, uh, if you go to Jerusalem, you can actually pay like 50 cents and go see the casket in which David's in. Uh, they, actually put that ca- they actually put the casket together without a body in his little uh, shop in Jerusalem in like 1752. And so you can go and look at that casket if you want to, but it's not an authentic site. Okay, but in those days, they knew where David had been buried. He's saying, hey, David's still buried out there. He hasn't been resurrected yet. Uh, And so he wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah, verse 31. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ when he's saying you're not going to allow your Holy One to undergo decay in a grave. He's going to be resurrected in a real short time frame after his death. Uh, This Jesus God raised up, consistent with the statement of Psalm 16. To which we are all witnesses. Remember one of the key characteristics of being an apostle? You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Christ didn't appear just to the apostles, but he appeared to the apostles multiple times. So they had no doubt of the historicity of the resurrection. Watch out for the thing the National Geographic Channel wants to do with you. You've got the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. The Jesus of history is the Christ of faith. They're both the same person. You don't have a Jesus who was just a nice guy and a virtuous martyr, and then 300 years later at the Council of Nicaea, they invented something about him. The apostles preached Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, as God-man from day one. That's why they got killed and martyred. And here's an early example of that. So what's he emphasizing here in the first part of this message? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now look at verse 33. The ascension of Christ, which is where the book of Acts began in chapter 1, right? Therefore... Having been exalted to the right hand of God, when was Jesus exalted to the right hand of God? At the ascension, right? Death of Christ, three days later resurrection, 40 days later ascension. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, us speaking in tongues because we've been filled with the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the church age, which you both see and hear. Then he's going to cite David again. 110. We looked at this pretty closely about a month ago, Psalm 110. So we won't go through all the Hebrew right now, but watch this. For it was not David who ascended to heaven. You can go to his tomb, his real tomb. They knew where it was then. We don't know where it is now. Uh, But he himself, David says in Psalm 110, the most cited passage in the Old Testament, in the New Testament is Psalm 110, but most American Christians can't even find it, right? Or know what it means. But he cites uh, Psalm 110 now in the closing part of this part of the message, and he says, the Lord, that's God the Father, Yahweh, says to my Lord, and that's Adonai Ni, which is my, my boss, my authority figure, the Lord, God the Father says to David's Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. When did God the Father tell Jesus to sit down? At the end of the ascension. 
Jesus waiting there in heaven in the control room until the end of the age, in the beginning of the millennial age, that passages like Joel 2 talk about. Um, Therefore, he concludes his bottom line at this point of the message, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God the Father has made Jesus both the Lord of Psalm 110, who's exalted in heaven, is going to come back and rule the world, and Christ. What does Christ mean? Many Americans think Christ think Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not his last name. Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, virgin conception, virgin birth, Jesus Christ. Christ is a title that means anointed one, Messiah, Savior, right? Jesus is, in fact, the Lord mentioned in Psalm 110, and he is the Savior not just of the Jewish people, but of the whole world. Is that amazing or what? Take this home. Uh, quite often at Christmas time, I like to do references to the real, real meaning of Christmas. Because Dwayne, a lot of times you'll during the Christmas season you'll hear, well, you know, even the secular world says, hey, Colin, people shouldn't be just obsessed with presents and fun at Christmas. We need to focus on the real meaning of Christmas, which is be nice to people, or world peace, or something like that. And I'm, I'm very much for being nice to people, especially being nice to pastors. Okay, that's that's important. And I'm very much for world peace. I mean, really. But that's not the real, real meaning of Christmas. The real, real meaning of Christmas is the baby in that manger was the God-man Savior. That's the real meaning of Christmas, right? So what's the real meaning of the Pentecostal event? Is it something that shows, shows us what every Christian should experience for the next 2,000 years? No. The, the, meaning, the real, real meaning of Pentecost is that God marked the beginning, the birth of the New Testament church with these unique events that we can read about. They're unique, not repeatable, but they, they really happened, okay? Now, why do I say Pentecost was the birthday of the church? And I'm going to go through this and then say a last word of exhortation and we'll be done. It, very easy. And you don't have to memorize all these verses, but let me just walk you through the process. First time I ever saw this Bob Leitner in, a, I'm not making this up, in a systematic theology class at Dallas Seminary walked us through this. In Matthew 16, based on Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, he said, We're gonna build, I'm going to build my church on that truth that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. What's basically Peter saying at the end of this section of his message? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right? So Jesus says, I will, future tense, build my church on that fact, on that truth. In, so that's fact one. Exhibit A. That's exhibit A. Exhibit B, Acts 1-5. Jesus tells the apostles just before the ascension, don't leave town. I know I told you go into all the world, but don't go into all the world yet. Stay here. You're going to need something. We're going to wait till the church starts. You will receive T-B-O-T-H-S. Wish I could remember what that meant. No, I, I know. Uh, you will receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in just a few days. That's what he told them. Okay, Joe? That's what he told him. Don't leave town until you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Don't leave town and start the church until the church starts. Okay? Acts 2. We have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It produces the manifestation of languages. T-M-O-L. The manifestation of languages as a sign of a new phase of the plan. Right? This is so cool. Acts 10. uh, First concerted gospel preaching to Gentiles. And, he, and, and all, they, all they do is trust Christ and get saved. Uh, and 
in the next chapter, legalists in Jerusalem say, you can't, tell, you can't just tell Gentiles to believe in Jesus and be saved. Don't you know they've got to become Jews first, and then they can believe in the Jewish Messiah? And Peter says, no. Jesus isn't just the Jewish Messiah, he's the Savior of the world. And they had the same, they got the same gift we got when they believed, just like we got at the beginning. He's talking about some things that happen in Acts 10 that we see in Acts 2. He realizes Acts 2 is the beginning of something that we focus on Jesus as Savior of the world, not as the Old Testament Israel is the manifestation of God's revelation, but something bigger than that. Uh, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says the baptism of the Holy Spirit places every believer into the body of Christ, which is the church. And then look at um, Ephesians with me real quick. Look at Ephesians 1, 19. And see what Peter, uh, Paul says about this. And Paul is big on, he's just excited about the, the reality of the church and it's new and it's different. And he admits as a Pharisee, it blew his categories. But once he kind of understood what it meant, he said, this is so incredible. This isn't an elimination of Israel. It's the fulfillment of what Israel was all about. The Messiah has come and now, boom, it's all about him. It's all about uh, uh, relationship in, in the Excessive rituals are no longer necessary. We're not on training wheels. We're without the training wheels. Uh, Paul, in the middle of Ephesians 1.19, he says, All this stuff I'm talking about is in accordance with the working of the strength of God's might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the right, at the right hand after the ascension in the heavenly places, far above all other rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, positionally, and gave him as head over all things to the what? Church, that's the new thing we're talking about, which is his body. Okay, what, look at 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. What spiritual dynamic puts believers into the body of Christ? Uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying it's all about the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now look at chapter 3. He's assuming you read chapter 1 when he gets back to the same topic in Ephesians 3, 5, and he says this. If I can find it. Uh, talking about the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the body of Christ, which in other generations, not even in Joel's generation, uh, had been made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles, the uncircumcised Greco-pagan Gentiles that believe in Christ are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, full-fledged members and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ of the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power to me, the very least of all the saints, because he had used to previously had killed Christians. As, that was his job. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Not you have to become Jews and then you can uh, trust in the Messiah. You can have salvation just where you are. No one's so bad they can't have it. No one's so good they don't need it. The unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. You could call that the dispensation of the mystery, the church age which for ages has been hidden in God. Joel didn't know about it. Nobody knew about it. But it's the mind of God. 
which, was crea which had created all things, so that the manifest wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, the uniqueness of the church. Last time I ended, and I said, we, just, we take the church, I mean, capital C church, for granted, much less the local church. But it was hard for those who were present at Pentecost to take it for granted. It was obviously a huge thing. Let me close this way. Uh, God can and d does do miracles all the time, but he doesn't do sign and wonders miracles, but when he's marking major new junctures, sound like George W. Bush I or George H.W. Uh, Bush I, uh, but God does do miracles. And as a pastor, I've seen a lot of miracles. On the other hand, when he says pray in faith, this idea that if you just believe strong enough something's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's not what faith means. Faith means seeking and submitting to God's will all in, 100%. And sometimes he does miracles, and sometimes he doesn't do miracles. Although some of the times when he doesn't do miracles, when you get to heaven and you get a, you get a really slick PowerPoint program of your whole life from the divine point, viewpoint perspective, some of those times when you didn't think he did any miracles, he did other miracles to do other cool things that you're not even aware of maybe till you get to heaven. So, of course, we pray for miracles, but the idea that some of these unique biblical miracles we're expecting to see all the time, every time, just isn't what is the intent at all. And here's the thing. We walk by faith, not just by sight, but our faith is in facts and in a faithful God. Okay? So what was the point of the Pentecostal miracles? I'm telling you, in my humble opinion, it's God marking and validating the beginning of the New Testament church. That's what happened, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to appreciate and understand better the depths of the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ in this wonderful church age, and yet we've got so much more to look forward to in all eternity. I want to pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart said to you as the Spirit convicts them of the sin and their need, Lord, I am a sinner. I can't fix it. It's my fault. I can't earn my way into heaven. I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as you are. I can never be and won't be. But I want you to save me. I believe Jesus died for my sins, that he paid for my sin debt on the cross, and he rose again, and he lives uh, to be the judge of the living and the dead, and I trust in him. I accept him. I believe he died for me, and I want him to be my Savior. Uh, there's anyone here this morning who's never by your grace trusted in Christ alone in that way, draw them to yourself. For most of us, many of us, we're believers in Christ, but maybe we take for granted this amazing period of your grace we're living in. As an American, I look around, I see a lot of things falling apart, but I've got citizenship in heaven, and we can shine light, and we can do good things, even against a blacker blacker, blacker background, and trust in you for the historical moment that we're in. But help us to never take the, the capital C church, all believers in Duncan, regardless of denomination or color or culture, are part of our, our body of Christ, part of our family. And help us never to take that for granted or fail to see that. Uh, and also help us to embrace and love our local church for what it is. Uh, a, a, a trophy of your grace and we thank you for the way you provided for us as a body individually and pray that you would take this truth and use it not just as information but as transformative raw material to your glory we pray in Christ's name, amen